Hi, it's Beth, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, you'll hear from Jonathan. He's my second son without a mom and the fourth sibling from the Jenkins family to share their story. If you'd like to share your story on the podcast, please send me a message to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com. If you have another topic that you'd enjoy hearing on the podcast, please let me know. Thanks again for your continued support, and please remember to leave a rating and review. And now, Jonathan's story. Hi, this is Beth. Welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, I have my second son without a mom. He's not a daughter, but he's a son without a mom. But he does happen to be a brother to the first interview I had with a son without a mom. So Jonathan is my fourth Jenkins sibling that I've interviewed. Um, I will list all the episodes from the other three siblings in the podcast notes so that if you enjoy Jonathan's story, you can go back and hear the versions from his brother and his two sisters. Um, But this has been really so interesting for me to hear the perspectives of the three siblings and now the fourth um, from the loss of their mom. So I'm really, really glad that you're here, Jonathan, and um, really look forward to hearing your story. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you and let you introduce yourself and uh, tell us your story. And I'll be taking some notes and we'll ask you some questions when we're, when you're done. So thanks again for being here today. All right. Thank you. And, uh, you know, like I was telling you earlier, uh, just very thankful for what you've done and and uh, like my siblings have said in their podcast, you know, vulnerability wasn't a big thing uh, in my family. And uh, just so just hearing each other tell our stories from different perspectives and uh, it's something we never did. You know, we never really sat around and talked about you know, what was it like for you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> which is you know very strange and something we probably shouldn't have done, because if anybody was going to understand what we went through, it'd be, our, it'd be my siblings. But anyways, I'm very thankful for that. But my name's uh, Jonathan Jenkins. I'm living in in uh, mid Florida. And I'm, I'm currently a youth pastor, and I also work at a funeral home. But anyways, uh, I, I've, <clears throat> I, I was listening to my, I haven't heard Rebecca's. At this point, I haven't heard Rebecca's podcast. Uh, but I was listening to uh, Ramey's, and, or Raymond, as he likes to be called nowadays. <laughs> uh, but I listened to his and uh, Danielle's podcast, and it was quite fascinating just to hear how their perspectives were, uh, were different from what I experienced. And uh, really just from where I was when things happened and uh, also my age, because looking back, I, I realized, you know, I thought I was an adult. I was 15, uh, 14 when my mom had her first stroke and 15 when she died. Uh, but, you know, just looking back, I thought I, you know, I thought I was grown or whatever. And, and uh, but I, I was always, you know, the third one, like the, like me and my siblings, I was the third one to find out and, the, and all that. So, uh, <clears throat> but I just want to start from, uh, I'm going to start from the beginning uh, but I'm going to kind of move through it a little quicker because I think after my mom passed away is when things uh, really started moving in my life. If you listen to other podcasts, you know that uh, our mother, she, she in, in the year before she died, just about a year before she died, she had a, uh, she had a major stroke, really unexpected. Uh, she, didn't, she didn't take care of her health very well, and uh, I think that contributed to a lot of that. Uh, but she was uh, not, not very active or anything, but uh, you know, one, one night late at night, she had a stroke and, uh, I know my, my brother and his friend, you know, they were, they were teenagers. He was actually starting his senior year in high school. And, uh, so him and his friend, uh, Juan, they were up real late all the time and, and, uh, they just so happened to be up late that night and mom had her first major stroke and, uh, they had, they went out there to see what was wrong with her, woke up dad and all that kind of stuff. 
something like that happened. Of course, I wasn't there, so all I know is what I've heard. <laughs> Uh, but something like that had happened. They called the they called the, the ambulance, and then the ambulance took her to uh, Albany, Georgia, at Phoebe Phoebe Health. Uh, when I was just this is a strange part to my story is that uh, my dad was a pastor, uh, and but I was actually the only one of my siblings who I would go with my dad all over the place uh, to hospitals and nursing homes and. Uh, home visits and uh, you know I was I would be one that would you know we'd, we'd go to you know visit somebody in the hospital the next day you know they, they would pass away or something like that uh, so I had a lot of that kind of experience and just going to Phoebe you know just that that hospital in Albany uh, I had been there I had been there many times visiting people and seeing people and I always joke with people you know I, I've used, I used to visit so much with my dad I knew which hospitals had the best food uh, and, and Phoebe Phoebe was one of the better ones uh, but in Albany, it was a bigger town, so we used to go out to eat after those visits. So she was taken to that that Phoebe hospital, and uh, granted, you know, when when it's your own family, that's that was the strange part for me is I'd been there before with all these other people, and my dad visiting them, and I've been to the hospital rooms, been to the ICU, uh, all that stuff. I mean, I I had the whole place you know memorized. Uh, but the the difference was, you know, when you walk in there and it's your own family, you know, it's just it's a lot different, you know, <clears throat> and. Uh, and so when my mom had her first major stroke, you know, at that point, we didn't know what was going on. My dad had seen strokes before, stroke victims before, I should say. I don't know if he'd ever been around anybody who was having a stroke at the moment, but uh, he, he at least knew, knew the signs. He probably knew it was a stroke from, from the beginning. Uh, but they took her to Phoebe. And uh, unique to my part of the story is, you know, my brother was there when the ambulance came because he's the one that told, woke up my dad and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Danielle was in Valdosta at the time in college, which she had mentioned, and she was the one. I mean, we actually were scheduled. I'm pretty sure she had that stroke on a Friday, and uh, we were scheduled to go to Wild Adventures the next day. And uh, the plan was for all, all of us to get up, meet Danielle, go to Wild Adventures. And when I wake up, Danielle's sitting on my bed. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I wasn't really I wasn't really nervous or anything when I, when she woke me up, I was more excited to see her and all that kind of stuff, which she'd probably be shocked to hear that. Uh, but she, uh, she had woke me up and said, uh, Hey, mom had a major stroke, you know, and it's, it's so weird with me because I'd seen so many people that had gotten sick or, you know, lost mobility or had brain damage or whatever. I've seen a lot of people like that, that I've seen the day before, and then they have all this damage or whatever has been done you never expect for it to be your mom or your loved one or whatever. And, uh, and you also kind of assume, I assumed from the get go, you know, they had mentioned, you know, she had, after she had the major stroke, she was in the hospital, she lost uh, mobility on her left side. And uh, after that, I studied strokes a little bit and realized, you know, there's a, there's different kinds of strokes and different kinds of uh, outcomes from the strokes. And one of those can be a par paralyzing of the left side. And uh, so anyways, after all of that, uh, we had, we all went up to the hospital and I still not know what was going on. And, and, but I think we all kind of went with the assumption that she was going to get better quick. You know, it's just something we had to go to the hospital, get it checked out. They give us, you know, give her some medicine. We go home. Uh, but that wasn't the case when she lost mobility on the left side of her body. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, it immobilized her. And so she couldn't, she couldn't walk. She couldn't move around. She couldn't do anything on her own. And, uh, that was one of the most amazing things for me to see throughout that year. Uh, was to see my dad as he was a, he was a full-time minister with all you know love and grace towards that church uh, it was a very uh, difficult church we should just we'll just leave it at that a uh, very difficult church to pastor 
And, uh, but you know, he went, he did that. And <clears throat> I remember him, I mean, I remember him preaching. I think he preached at least one revival. I, I remember that year, uh, but he still kept up with the visits and all this stuff. And before that, my mom was a stay at home mom, just got her degree and all that. But uh, he was used to her being at home, uh, but he wasn't, of course, he wasn't used to having to take care of her like that. And so now he had to take care of her all the time. And you could tell, anybody could tell that it was a huge, a huge burden on him. And uh, he couldn't, you know, every time we'd go somewhere, you know, somebody had to be within, you know, 20, 30 minutes of her so they could rush home and help her, if, even if she just had to use the bathroom because she couldn't do that by herself. Uh, and she was, it was funny because she wouldn't, she would, she hated having anybody else help her besides, uh, besides uh, dad. Uh, I think my brother helped her maybe once or twice and all that stuff. I remember a specific story. This is when my dad was preaching that revival. I remember uh, a lady, <clears throat> she had come, it was a kind of a church friend or whatever. And, but she had come and, and dad asked her if she would sit with mom while he was doing this revival throughout the week. And uh, I remember she came and uh, actually this might've been, it might've been my birthday. I think we were out of town or something. So for some reason we were out of town and somebody, and she, she had to come watch her. And uh, <clears throat> I remember my dad, having, I remember, I remember her being there and my mom, you know, in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning or something, uh, that, uh, this, this lady was asleep and my mom didn't want to wake her. She had no problem waking up my dad. She's like, I don't want to wake her. I feel like that'd be rude because she needed help, you know, go to the bathroom, whatever. So I think she actually ended up waking up my brother that night and having him help. But, uh, <clears throat> but it was, it was, it was quite a, quite a sight to see, uh, see my dad and my dad, he, I remember my dad telling me a long time ago, uh, you know, when he when he passed away that he wanted uh, others written on his tombstone because uh, for a long time. And I think I think, uh, you know, depression and stuff kind of hurt that. Uh, but for a long time, you always saw him put others before himself, uh, including my mom. And so throughout that year, we got to watch my dad uh, just set aside a lot of different things, uh, you know, going out to places. And to some point, to an extent, it was kind of frustrating. You know, I'd ask dad, hey, let's go do that. And he'd say, no, no, I can't leave mom at home that long. And uh, he would have to take her to therapy and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was interesting too. My brother had talked about how <clears throat> how he had he had he had drove us a couple of times. We used to go out, like he said, every single day to when she was in the uh, the therapy wing of that hospital. The hospital had bought out another building that was a nursing home, so they owned both buildings. They called it Phoebe North, and uh, and. <clears throat> he had my brother had taken us there a couple of different times but I also went with my dad and all that kind of stuff uh one memory that was unique to my dad and I that nobody I don't think anybody else got to go to because it was during school and, and all that stuff but uh during that during that time they had uh towards the end of her therapy at, at that place she uh they they wanted her to go out and shop <laughs> And I think the plan was to, for my dad to take my little sister, but for some reason she couldn't go. And I actually ended up going. And uh, that was the first time I'd actually, actually seen my mom out in public after the stroke and all that. Uh, that was a, that, that's when it really hit me that things were, things were going to change and uh, that she was hurting and that she really was immobilized. And uh, <clears throat> so that was really tough seeing her, seeing her like that. And uh, throughout that year, I just, you know, it always, it felt like I had, I had lost my mom. And uh, so, and just seeing her not being able to do certain stuff. And I, I remember one time when, you know, she would try to tell us to do something and, and uh, this, this is probably really bad of me, but I'm thinking, you know, what are you going to do? You know, 
uh, <clears throat> and so a lot of times she would tell us to do stuff and we just wouldn't do it. And uh, so, yeah, I remember, I remember one time she actually was, she, it actually really upset her one time. She's like, these kids don't listen to me no more and all this stuff. My dad tried to reassure her that, that we did. And I'm like, well, no, we don't, you know? Uh, <clears throat> and so that, you know, that's kind of tough to look back on now. I mean, I can't believe I talked to her that way. You know, but I think every adult probably looks back and talks, thinks about, man, I can't believe I talked to my parents that way when I was a teenager. So that was a pretty interesting thing. But one thing I remember, and I was very interested to see if my brother had ever noticed this, but I don't think he did, is uh, throughout that year, my brother, he had a car and he would drive me to school most of the time. I remember during that every morning, a lot of times in the morning, I would think about, you know, man, I've, I've, I feel like I've lost my mom. And uh, <clears throat> I would think about that a lot every morning riding with my brother to school, uh, listening to whatever loud rap music he was playing. And uh, I just remember sitting in the car and crying and trying to make sure my brother didn't see me. Uh, and I guess back then it was probably more self-esteem issues than anything. But uh, and I, I, don't, I don't think my brother ever did notice that, you know, and uh, and I'm sure if he did, he, he would probably deeply regret it, not saying nothing or whatever. But uh, honestly, I was one of those people where if you were going to get me to talk, you were going to have to keep bugging me and bugging me and bugging me to get me to talk to you. And then I'd have to trust you, too, because I had a lot of trust issues with people. Uh, so that's something I, I definitely remember. And, and so then we get you know, through that year and we get you know, to my brother's graduation. And this is where a lot of my, you know, a lot of my theology lies and, and, uh, and or roots from, I guess I should say, or is driven from. Because, uh, like I was telling uh, Beth earlier, you know, when I, when, uh, <clears throat> when I, when I left, when I, after my mom had died, I went to school and all that, and started studying theology and the Bible and and uh, Christianity and things like that. I would kind of, I would come up with some kind of formula, and then I'd run it through my mom's death and uh, the timing of events and all that kind of stuff, and see if the formula fit. And uh, not all, not not just is was it satisfactory to me, but is it true? And uh, so I'd run that formula through, but what was interesting, and I don't think my, my siblings mentioned this a whole lot. I remember my sister mentioning it, uh, but that week was, was, uh, was pretty spectacularly uh, time, uh, almost to the, I, I'd say it's to the point where it can't be explained by natural means. Um, so you know, my brother, he, he, they had mentioned this, you know, it's my brother's graduation on Saturday and on Sunday, you know, all the family's just hanging out and all this stuff. Uh, Sunday night is when, you know, she had, she had her, I think, I think what had happened, uh, I know there's some speculation, my dad would probably know more than anybody, uh, but I think what had happened is she started having seizures and the seizures caused the stroke. Uh, and I think the stroke happened while she was at the hospital. So anyways, that night and all that, so she had, she had the seizure and then she went to, she was rushed to the hospital in the middle of the night. I do remember waking up for that one of the ambulance being outside. And I woke up and asked my dad what was going on. He said, he said, something's wrong with your mom. They're taking her back to the hospital and all that. And I said, okay. And uh, I asked to go then. He's like, no, no, you're not going yet. Go later. So I went, I actually ended up going later, like my brother said. Uh, we went later, me, him, and, and I believe our friend, our brother, Juan, as we call him. <clears throat> but we all went that morning. And uh, still not know what was going on and all that stuff. And uh, I do remember what my brother talked about with, uh, you know, my mom saying, you saved me, you know, you saved me, you saved me. Uh, that was, that was pretty cool. I know that's something he'll never forget. Uh, but, you know, we get to the hospital and all this. And from my perspective, uh, you know, we're sitting there uh, and the first thing they did was let us go in there and see mom. 
And uh, like he said, was you know, like my brother said, we when we first got there, uh, she was still responsive. She could communicate to us. Uh, I don't I don't think she could talk. Uh, I think she could. She was mumbling some noises maybe when I showed up, and uh, I don't think she could talk though. Uh, but while I was in the room with her, uh, she wrote, she had wrote down a few things and all that. And then uh, I think she started having another seizure while I was in the room. And I don't remember if that was before or after my brother went in, but to my memory, when I walked in there, I don't remember her being able to, uh, I don't actually remember her being able to communicate with me. I remember her scribbling stuff on paper and I remember her having another seizure and then I was kind of escorted out. And then I think after that, they gave her some uh, seizure medication, which put her in a coma. And uh, then she was in a coma for the whole week. Uh, and they rushed her to ICU and all that. Uh, so that so my perspective there was a little different. And then just sitting in the lobby and telling people and all that kind of stuff. I had probably had the best relationship with the church people than any of us. Uh, but I was a real quiet kid, you know. So a lot of people, you know, just didn't, I didn't really talk to a lot of people. Uh, so anyways, we go to ICU and, and uh, another part that's unique to my story is I actually I was actually there when the doctor had first told us. I know they were they were wondering who was there first. Uh, I was actually there first when the doctor had told me and my dad because uh, because Monday they taken her to ICU and then they said that there is a uh, I know my brother was wondering about this too. But there was uh, there's they have like these rooms. And I think it's at a lot of hospitals, but this is a nicer hospital though. But they have a hallway, and if if you have a loved one that that you know something bad might happen, uh, they'll let you stay there. And I didn't realize that's what that room was for, you know, uh, that day. But I think the doctors kind of knew this is not looking good that on Monday. So, anyways, they let us stay in this room, and to my knowledge, my dad and I were the only ones that stayed overnight in Albany, and uh, we had to get up at eight o'clock in the morning and uh, meet with the doctor, and uh, we were <clears throat> we were standing and we walked down the hallway and he. He, we walked into the room, waited on him and all that stuff. The doctor pulled us out in the hallway and uh, and told us that, hey, he told us what was going on. He showed us the brain scan and said the whole he basically showed us the whole like left side of her brain is brain dead. And uh, and he said, we're going to have to start making some end of life decisions. And uh, I think and this is where mine and my brother, this was pretty interesting. Mine and my brother's story got really similar. Uh, now, he wasn't there for this part, but at first, you know, we kind of just didn't, we just didn't connect, didn't click. And it was just kind of a shock. And I do remember not, I'm trying not to break down while this doctor's talking to us. And my dad was the same way. And uh, so we got done talking to the doctor and I do this thing. I still do it now. If I get stressed or emotional or whatever, I, I have to like rub my hair and it, it's kind of a thing that calms me down. And I just remember holding my hand, my hands on my head and rubbing my hair over and over again. And, uh, but what was interesting is after he told us that I walked out and I said, I got to call, I got to call her sister, which is our aunt Dana. And uh, I told my brother this weekend, actually, I said, you know, it's interesting that the first time he broke down was with my aunt Dana. Uh, but I actually didn't call her. I called her husband, uh, Louie, because I didn't want to be the one to tell her, you know, especially not over the phone. I figured tell Louie, he could tell her and uh, talk to Louie. And before I could even get the words out of my mouth, you know, just broke down. That's when it just hit like a wrecking ball. Uh <clears throat> And, uh, and I, I remember breaking down with him on the phone and, and, uh, and then kind of, and then my dad come back out and my dad trying to comfort me, you know, he's, he, he told me, he said, uh, listen, Johnny, uh, cause he came out there after he got done talking to the doctor and sat down with me and, and uh, I was crying and all that. He said, you know, it's okay to be upset, you know, 
And uh, that's when that's when he had first broken down too, was trying to comfort me, and he just he couldn't hold it together. Um, <clears throat> but after a couple minutes, you know, we couldn't just sit around and be the only ones that knew. Then we started uh, mostly him. I don't remember calling anybody else, but uh, he he. I remember him calling a lot of people. I actually remember him calling my older sister. I don't remember him calling my brother, but uh, I remember him calling my older sister and saying, uh, uh, you know, asking where she was and all that kind of stuff and uh, told her what was going on. I, I remember her breaking down and crying so loudly that I could hear her through his phone and standing, you know, two, three feet from him or so. Um, <clears throat> so it was, it was definitely a different kind of experience, you know, being there and all that stuff. And, and uh, later that day, I mean, all the family, that's, this was the cool part, is all the family hadn't left yet. Uh, none of the family had left yet. And they were all probably planning on leaving Monday or Tuesday. Um, and so all of them stayed and actually in Moultrie, that's where they were staying uh, at, at the Hampton Inn there. The Hampton Inn heard what was going on. Somebody had went to the desk and heard what was going on. And uh, to my knowledge, the Hampton Inn actually offered them discounted rooms to be able to stay there for the rest of the week. So I, that was really cool. And because uh, that day, everybody knew that day. The next day, we all kind of went. Uh, we went in and that's when we actually had to make the end of life decisions. I remember it had to have been 15 of us. Uh, sitting in this room and uh, the doctor asking us what will you do if this happens what are we going to do if this happens what are we going to do if this happens and uh, like my my siblings mentioned you know there was they told us there's no there's no basically there's no purpose in keeping her alive is she's going to be I mean she's going to be brain dead she'd just be a, a breathing body is basically all she would be and uh, and so I remember sitting there in that meeting though and everybody else kind of talking and all this stuff and I was just I mean the, the whole week just felt surreal to me uh and I just remember them sitting there talking and I, I was still doing the hair thing. That's when I started getting real nervous and, and uh, emotional again. And so I kept, kept rubbing my hair again. And, and uh, finally, somebody asked me, you know, what do you think, Jonathan? You know, and, and uh, it took everything in me not to break down <laughs> in that, in that situation. But uh, I just remember I, I got out a few words and, and I just kind of stopped talking after that. I just kind of said, yeah, that sounds good to me, you know. Uh, you know, as long as I think, I think my biggest thing was, you know, as long as she's not going to be hurting, that was the important part. And she actually was on do not resuscitate uh, for a couple of days. And uh, so that, that way the plan was just to make sure all the family could see her one last time. And, and uh, still, you know, there's still speculation, you know, can people actually hear while they're in comas and all that stuff, you know? Uh, but we, I think most of us assume that we did. And I, I was actually in the same boat as my same boat as my brother, uh, I just, you know, it, it felt, you know, I thought maybe she could hear me, but it just felt, it just felt really weird, you know, and almost, uh, you know, almost like she could. And I guess, I guess, you know, I, I kind of thought she could, but I didn't feel like she could, I guess is the proper way to put it. But uh, I did, I talked to her a couple of times, but uh, one thing I was very uncomfortable with and I get really frustrated is when the family would be standing in the room and start talking about her death or start talking about, you know, the, the situations and all that stuff. It used to really irritate me. I was like, hey, I think y'all need to get out of here. And I think I did tell them a couple of times and said, we should talk about this outside or something like that. Uh, and I was a little kid then. So I, didn't, I wasn't as aggressive as I am now. <laughs> My leadership capabilities weren't as good then. Uh, so anyways, go through that week and all the family, like I said, they were all allowed to stay at the hotel longer. And uh, so then come Saturday, that's when the day she died, she was moved to hospice and all that stuff. Uh, and I remember Saturday, my sister mentioned this, uh, but Saturday we were waiting on, uh, we, or, or we call them our Mexican brothers, <laughs> uh, 
but uh, Juan was one of them. And then Nestor, Juan, Juan had to go to work earlier that week. Uh, he came up with us Monday when she first went to the hospital. And then after he found out she had died, he had to come back. But him and his brother Nestor couldn't get up there until Saturday. And uh, the rest of the Lozano uh, siblings, there's five of them. All of the rest of them had come and visited already. And I don't, I can't think of anybody that was planning on coming that, that uh, still needed to come or whatever. Uh, and my sister actually had a different perspective on that when Juan and Nestor came than I did. Uh, I just kind of more figured it as God was letting her hold on uh, until those two boys came and visited her. Uh, but I think my sister's onto something too, that mom waited. Uh, I think she waited until they came. Uh, and it was, I mean, I just knew, I'm like, you know, and I actually said a few days before, I don't know if I actually told anybody out loud or not uh, on Thursday or Friday, but I said, you know, I think when Nestor and Juan finally get here Saturday, I think that's when she'll die. And, and they came probably early Saturday morning and uh, she passed away. It had to been about 12 or one o'clock uh, that day. And I actually remember too, uh, you know, standing in the, standing in the hospice room, you know, they, the doctors knew like, all right, this is it. And uh, very, very strange sides. The only time in my entire life I'd seen somebody die uh, in front of me. Uh, but I had seen, you know, I had seen people that were alive earlier in the day and passed away later that day and, and uh, that kind of stuff. And, uh, but anyways, that was the first person and the only person I've seen actually die. And now at my job, I've seen people who have died, but I uh, haven't seen anybody else die in front of me yet. Uh, <clears throat> very strange sight. You know, you hear all these stories and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you, I really, ex I, I'll be honest with you, and this might, this may be sound kind of bad, but I was really expecting something a little more exciting to happen. Uh, when she did die, uh, you know, like smiling or saying, hey, you know, hey, Jesus or something like that. Uh, but nothing like that really happened. Uh, I just remember standing there. I was standing on the foot of the bed, uh, leaning on the bed, just kind of zoned out to everybody else and all this stuff. And and uh, my our brother Juan had actually wrote this uh, really awesome poem uh, about her on his Facebook. And uh, those Lozano brothers probably struggled with it just if I mean, close to as bad as we probably did, because uh, that was their mom, too. Uh, but he wrote this awesome poem about her. And my Aunt Dana said, hey, Juan, would you like to read it? And he's like, no, there's no way I could read it. And uh, so her sister, uh, Dana, uh, my mom's sister, Dana, actually read that poem to her. And, uh, you know, this gets kind of graphic, but uh, she was, I remember my mom opened her eyes all the way up. And this is the first time we'd seen her eyes open the whole time. And right before she took her last breath, she opened her eyelids. Her eyelids went all the way open. And uh, it's almost like she did like one last scan of the room and, uh, and uh, she, her eyes were like, went all the way open while her, her sister was reading this poem to where they, they closed and the doctors finally told her that was it. And uh, in that moment, I remember just sitting there and, and standing at the edge of the bed and it's still just a surreal feeling and uh, just like, wow, this, this didn't happen, you know? And uh, just standing there and, and crying and all that stuff. And, and Nestor, I remember Nestor walking up to me. That was just stiff. I wasn't moving anywhere. And uh, I remember Nestor walking up to me and said, hey, man, you need to go out there uh, and be with your sister. I'm like, no, I'm staying right here. And he's like, no, you need to go be with your sister. And uh, so we walked, we all walked out there. I just remember my little sister. I turned around and realized, you know, everybody else was upset. My sister was just bawling her face off and and uh, all that stuff. And, and uh, we all kind of went around her and and took care of her. And, and it was funny is, you know, once, once my mom had died, you know, she, she, my little sister became the priority. Uh, so if anybody actually was reached out to, it was her over everybody. Uh, and I think she realizes that a little bit, but 
especially us, those older ones, we probably realized that more than she did. Uh, because like my brother said, you know, he, 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 even he felt the need to go talk to her, but not me. Well, he felt the need, but he just didn't do it. Uh, but we definitely reached out to my little sister and a bunch of the adults did as well. Uh, so anyway, there was, there was a specific story I forgot to mention. This was, uh, this was something that will not leave my head. Uh, I just remember my sister going in there and trying to speak to my mom uh, while she was in a coma. And I know my mom, I know my sister talked about this too, but uh, <clears throat> I remember my sister when she was standing there and my mom had shed a tear, maybe two tears or something like that. And I just remember, I mean, I was probably, I had to been 15, 20 feet down the hall in a, like a lobby area. And just all of a sudden, just like almost like screaming, crying uh, in the room. And I'm like, oh, we all ran in there to see what had happened. And, and uh, that's what it was, is my, my mom had shed a tear and all that stuff. And, and uh, this, my sister kind of assumed that she was just suffering in so much pain and upset. And uh, the doctors reassured her that actually it's, it could be, just be a natural thing or whatever too, you know. Uh, people can just, you know, kind of tear up like that uh, without actually, you know, thinking about it. Uh, so that was that was a pretty, pretty strange thing. And something I won't ever forget, uh, that noise, you know, that I heard. Uh, but anyway, so uh, this is where this is where my story gets dramatically different, though. It's after my mom had died. Uh, I remember going out to the lobby and calling my my friend uh, Enrique, another one of the Lozano brothers of ours, <coughs> calling him and said, hey, man, she she just passed. And uh, didn't, you know, it was still just surreal at this point. I mean, I was, it was so surreal. That I wasn't even, I wasn't even crying. I was in so much, so much shock and all. And uh, so anyways, called him, let him know, got off the phone and, and just kind of sat there. And I think somebody finally got me to go walk around outside, get some water and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I remember now thinking now that I've been at the funeral home <laughs> and know what people do when they, when they pick up a body like that. I, I do remember the funeral home guys going in there, but uh the whole situation, you know, was a little different than the, even the way we handle stuff. Uh, so that was, that's, that was pretty, uh, that's something I now just now started thinking about is what those guys did and all that stuff. And they were great, great people at that Cobb funeral home. Uh, so anyway, so after this, you know, we had the funeral and all that stuff, still everything just surreal. Uh, and I remember there was a ton of people at the funeral, this church that held, it probably held 200, 250 people maxed out. Uh, choir loft and everything the whole the whole church was maxed out uh, we never we didn't get a graveside service because it rained and all that stuff uh, but anyway so all that happens and after the funeral after all the family leaves you know that's when it you know everything really mellows out and then you start realizing stuff and uh, I personally went into a, a pretty pretty deep depression uh, <clears throat> you know I, I thought about you know suicide but never never attempted it uh, there was a couple of times, you know, driving my car, I thought maybe I could just, you know, if I just drove my car off the road and, and crashed into something, you know, uh, I don't think I ever would have actually done it, but those thoughts crossed my mind a lot. And, uh, and one of the biggest mistakes I made, uh, was, you know, not asking for help <laughs> and, uh, for people who are in the same kind of, uh, jobs and stuff as, as me or, in, and you, uh, <clears throat> you, you know, it's, <laughs> And I think my dad was this way too. And I actually heard my dad say this, you know, I'm a counselor, you know, I know, I know what they're going to tell me. Why would I go get seek counseling? Uh, and I think that was a, 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 just a terrible mistake. And I, I think I should have gotten counseling a lot quicker. Uh, but anyways, I struggled through this really deep depression. I remember going to church sometimes and I remember this one preacher and he would get up there and lead worship. And, and he said, you know, y'all should smile while you're at church. 
and uh, and he was talking about me, and I was so depressed. I hated going to church. You know, nothing against God or anything. I just didn't didn't want to deal with people and just wanted to be alone and be depressed. And uh, so, anyways, I, I really struggled with depression and all that. And not too many people, I think people noticed, but not not I don't remember anybody, but two people actually saying something about it. Uh, I remember my friend Kiki. He he ended, he told me a few years later, maybe a year or two ago from now. Uh, he's like, yeah, he said, I felt like I should have really reached out to you more. And I should have reached out to him. You know, this is his mom too, just about. And, uh, you know, he's like, I really should have talked to you more about it. My dad never really asked me about it. And, uh, but the two people, there was this one guy in high school, I didn't even really like him. And uh, he just looked at me one day and said, hey man, you look depressed. And uh, that was it. He never said anything else to me about it. I don't think he was kind of, he was kind of a, uh, a dude to put it nicely. Uh yeah, I didn't know he wasn't a, he wasn't a big friend of mine. I <laughs> uh, didn't say anything else about it. And uh, I, the only other person was my dad's sister and uh, Aunt Debbie. She had actually said at dinner at lunch one time, uh, she was one that would really get in somebody's face and say, you need to do this. You need to do that. Uh, she's the older sister of my dad's bunch. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but she actually told my dad one time, she's like, you need counseling. That's when I heard him say that. Uh, but she also said while I was walking back to the table, coming from the restroom she said have you even asked Jonathan uh, if he's doing all right and he said I think he's doing okay you know and uh, still even at that point nobody nobody actually sat down to ask me hey are you doing okay and so what's interesting now is when I do ministry I don't sit around and, and wait for somebody to walk up to me about their problems you know I actually reach out to them and said hey how are you doing and uh, and typically at this point my my hope is that I've already I already have their trust before this situation happened where they're, where they're willing to walk up to me and talk to me and all that stuff. Uh, <clears throat> and so now when I, when I know somebody has gone through something, uh, I reach out to him. I had a friend Hunter and, and uh, the same, the same two days, one day, his mom, biological mom got, you know, kind of one of those crazy lives like that. But uh, she had just, she accidentally tripped on a step. And uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things you see on like a thousand ways to die. But she tripped on a step and hit that that part of her nose where if you hit it, it will kill you. And uh, and I remember that. And he was a minister, a real good minister friend of mine in school. And I just remember asking him, I say, listen, you know, how are you doing? I was I was and he told me later, he's like, you know, you're one of the only ones that really got in my face and said, how are you doing? Because I knew what it would have taken for somebody to get in my face about it. Uh, <clears throat> but what happened in after the fact was was the most interesting part. So my my older sister. Older brother, uh, both went off to college, a secular college of uh, Boston State University, and uh, they were they were, to my knowledge, they were with the church and doing stuff with the church and the Christian people uh, for a while, uh, but kind of drifted away from that uh, a little bit. Uh, I think my brother probably drifted the furthest, uh, but I know my sister had even talked to me about it now uh, because now I'm a little more trained in apologetics, so she actually kind of asked me questions and stuff about some of this stuff, uh, but. So they they went to Valdosta State University. Me and my sister were living with my dad. But when I left high school, I was actually called into the ministry my senior year of high school in the middle of my depression, uh, doing all kinds of stuff and uh, just bad stuff that I shouldn't have been doing. And uh, God still called me into the ministry. And so later that, the next year, that was in November, the next year I went to a, a school called Bruton Parker College. And uh, by the time I'd gotten there, uh, I'm not one of those people, I would never say that I was actually angry at God. 
just more doubtful and uh, had a lot of questions, <laughs> a lot of questions. And I think sometimes I would sit in those classes kind of like an atheist. Uh, but one thing I do remember from my brother after my mom had died is he said, I don't know how people get through this without believing in God. Uh, and I, I, I tell people that story a lot. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if I should share some of these other stuff, but had another person. We'll just say that I had one person walk up to my dad and said, hey, how's that prayer working for you now? Uh, this was about one minute after my mom just taking her last breath. But all those kind of sayings and stuff, I, I shared them a lot in my sermons and all that. Uh, but I went to school and I started I started really asking uh, existential questions and, you know, figuring out what's what's true about my faith. And is Christianity true? Is the Bible trustworthy? All that kind of stuff. Did Jesus really say and do what he, what the Bible says he said and did? Uh and, uh, you know, needless to say, you know, a year or two after I started studying this kind of stuff and really asking questions and uh, getting on my friends' nerves and my professor's nerves <laughs> with these questions, uh, I just, I feel I, now, especially now, I mean, this is year five, I've really been, you know, studying this kind of stuff. Uh, I'm very confident, you know, that, that Jesus is, the, you know, the way of salvation, that, he, that he's the only way of salvation. And uh, that he can bring hope in times of, of trouble like this. You know, the Bible says, you know, absent from the body is present with the Lord uh, for those who are believers and First uh, Corinthians. And so a lot of that stuff kind of came to life when I was really convinced of uh, I was really convinced of the faith and of Jesus Christ and all that stuff. And so I, I really started preaching and sharing and telling people about that. And I was actually a pastor in Georgia for three years at a little church. Uh, but most of my, most of my ministry was really with one younger guy there. And then a lot of people at, on college, at college campuses. And then the people I worked with too. Uh, when I, one thing I remember, uh, I did, I talked about it a lot of times. So that was where I was kind of unique with me and my siblings, uh, is I, I was, and I preached. And so when I would preach, I would, I would share the story of my mom's death. And I talk about how much, how powerful it is to me when I, when I read in the, in the gospel of John. That Jesus said, he tells, you know, Lazarus's sisters that I am the resurrection and life. You know, I share with people how powerful that is to me uh, being, uh, you know, being a believer and, and having my mom die and all that stuff. And I share it with teenagers. I do a little little lesson with teenagers. I'll do the Lazarus story and I'll have actors come up. We'll have a fun time acting out the Lazarus story. And uh, then I say, well, let me tell you all a story and why this is so powerful to me. And uh, every time I've done, I've done it uh, two or three times now. And every time I've done it, just the room gets so quiet and they listen and it's, it's you can tell it's pretty powerful. <clears throat> and it, it's just, I think that's helped out a lot. Now, one thing I did do too, and I, I didn't, I see, we didn't, I didn't even know my siblings were a part of counseling. And I did go to, a, I finally did start meeting with a Christian counselor on campus. And uh, at that point I was, you know, getting, my faith was getting stronger. Uh, I was trusting God more. I was confident in the Lord. Uh, confident in the Bible and everything it teaches. And, uh, <clears throat> and I started meeting with this counselor and he, he kind of reassured me. He's like, you know, the only thing I remember him saying that was kind of strange is, you know, he asked me, well, how long has it been since your mom died? And uh, at first I'm like, I, I kind of had to guess the years. I don't actually remember too much. Remember the year she died. I just remember, you know, the day and the, and I know June 1st, you know, uh, and I, I think we're at eight and a half years now or a little over eight years uh, at this point, but uh, so he was, he said, but other than that, he said, uh, it seems like you're, it seems like you're, you're kind of in, in the normal grieving process. And he taught me more about the grieving process and all that kind of stuff, uh, from a Christian perspective, which meant a lot more to me than just going to a, a secular counselor, uh, just hearing that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm very glad to hear that my siblings did the same thing and seek and, and sought counseling and all that, uh, it's very important stuff. 
And so now, you know, like I said, you know, when I when I do ministry uh, or even working at the funeral home, dealing with the families of these these uh, the people who have passed away, uh, just I just have that, you know, big heart for people that, you know, I just know most people aren't going to they're not going to say, hey, uh, something's wrong with me. I need your help. You know, they're going to they're just going to sit there and quiet and pouting in the corner. And, uh, you know, and I, I know I've learned how to read people. I've learned how to sense emotions. Uh, I think that's one of the gifts that God's given me is discernment. Uh, so I can kind of discern when somebody's feeling a certain way and I can, I'll know to reach out to them. And I've had a lot of people open up to me because of that. And uh, just, just being able to tell my story and being vulnerable with them about my mom's death. Uh, I think that's, that's helped them out a lot. And uh, like you can tell in this podcast, you know, I kind of, <clears throat> you know, I laugh and I'm, I'm happy about it. Uh, it's because I'm confident. I'm confident in Jesus Christ and uh, in the Bible. And it's helped me out. Of, it's helped me out a lot. Yeah. That's why I think a lot of the, I think a lot of that stuff can really be rooted into worldview, uh, worldview questions. You know, where what's the world? Where's everything going to? What's the purpose and all that kind of stuff? I think I'm pretty comfortable there. I think that's that's the whole story and probably a little more than uh, most people were expecting. And <laughs> yeah. Um, well, just the first thing I have to say is that so you haven't heard Rebecca's yet, but you are my fourth um, Jenkins sibling, and. Um, so I have three children on my own and I'm going to try not to get emotional when I say this, but I, your mom has to be so proud of all four of you because you all four are so um, family oriented and empathetic and compassionate. And um, wow, you really, I, she has to be so proud of all four of you because each of you are um, amazing people in your own right, in your own ways. Um, but yeah. She's she and your dad said some a foundation of support and love um, that you guys have taken with you. So it just makes me as as a mom myself like whoo like that's yeah. you know I think a lot about what legacy do you leave and your mom left an amazing legacy in the form. And uh, and I don't I don't know if they mentioned this before, but at the church and my dad was a pastor, uh, but my mom handled everything from youth not younger basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, from uh, from not not real little kids, but like middle school to high school kids, mm-hmm. and uh, which really crumbled after she left or she passed away. And uh, but now being a youth pastor, I think back to all the kids and stuff, and and all the kids loved her to death, and it was because she was she was so gracious and mm-hmm. uh, empathetic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got a lot of those you know traits and attributes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I loved the so you I've heard about Juan from everyone. Um, but the, the Lozano brothers, the Lozano siblings, you said, are really, really. Um, so yeah, she, they're true gifts of God. Five of them, there's four of us, and uh, minus this one, I mean, there, there was there was a Lozano for every one of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And that she was the same age as Abby, I was the same age as Kiki, and Remy was the same age as uh, Juan and Chris, and, mm-hmm. and Nestor's the same age as Danielle, so it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and that, and like you and Daniel both talked about that, that your mom or God, you know, waited for those brothers to be able to come see yeah. her. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. So you did mention something about um, that you were not one to talk a lot when, you know, well, you were also 15 years old, which, you know, teenagers don't necessarily always talk a lot, but that you had some trust issues are you willing to tell me a little bit more about that or how you've overcome that or, you know, just thinking about people who are listening, what they can. Yeah, I can tell you a little more about it. I don't know if I can tell you how to overcome it, but. <laughs> well, you seem to have overcome it. You pretty. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
and and being in the ministry too, it's it, you know it's tough too figuring out who you can trust and who you can't. And so even now, you know, my trust is is very difficult. You know, and and to get people to for people to get me to talk, uh, some of that had to do with trust, but a lot of it had to do with people just weren't reaching out to me, okay. uh, which is like I said, you know, I'm very intentional about reaching out to people. Uh, but you know, the trust issue came a lot from you know you just don't know who you could talk to that's not going to talk to somebody else about what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Enrique, uh, the Lozano brother, he was he was good about that with me, and and Juan was too, and and uh, our another friend Cody, which was really good friends with Juan. And uh, we became good friends. They were all good at that. Uh, but I think a lot of it now just comes to, you know, what's you know my purpose, you know, finding my purpose in life and knowing that because uh, I want other people to trust me. And uh, people aren't going to trust me uh, telling me their stories if, if they know I don't trust them telling my story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, and I've also learned, you know, being a minister, uh, what stuff I can share and what stuff I can or even in the funeral home. You know, I can't go around telling people oh, this person died because they overdosed or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've, I've learned, you know, what stuff needs to be confidential, what stuff I can freely share and uh, who I can freely share that with. Uh, so I think a lot of my trust has just come, honestly, just from from sharing my story and trying to reach out to other people and building their trust, and uh, the trust ends up becoming kind of mutual. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, good. I was just reading something about boundaries too, and how boundaries like have kind of a negative connotation with them, but when you're real yeah. clear about the kind of person that you want to be and what your you know your life's intentions and values are and you can put boundaries up to keep you you know safe within those decisions um it does help cultivate trust for sure right Um, because you're living authentically to yourself which then allows either you to draw people to you or or away from you that fit into that you know into that boundary and integrity probably helped out a lot too you know Mm. so i was i mean I mean, even now, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm same, same thing preachers say all the time, you know, I'm not, I'm not better than anybody else or anything like that, but uh, I feel confident my integrity is strong enough that it really doesn't matter what people find out because I know I've held on to my integrity. And I think, you know, um, I mean, for me personally, I was mad at God for like 20 years. Um, I also cringed when people would throw the word around because my grandparents were the only people who had taken me to church. They were my only example of Christians and they threw me out of their house when my mom was dying. So I always, I always cringed when people would throw that word around, but when you are able to lead through example, like you said, through your integrity and through your own stories and through your own vulnerability, um, I think that is what really makes you relatable, especially yeah. to youth. Youth can, youth can smell a fake for miles away. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. And what's uh, what's interesting too is I, uh, I I realize I realize deeply. Uh, and most people probably won't be able to tell this, listen to this recording, but I'd have teared up a couple times. But I'm not one to I'm still not one to cry in front of people very often. Uh, but I always tell people there's there's only a couple people that can make me cry, and that's my mom, my wife, and I'm sure, and my kids. Uh, once my baby's born, and uh, and Jesus Christ. I do think about that a lot. And I actually, I, I dealt with anxiety a lot too. Being a pastor, I, I have actually had panic attacks. Uh, but I remember seeing, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but God's, the God's Not Dead, uh, the third movie. In that one, the pastor, and, and spoiler alert for those who haven't watched it, but in, in the movie, the pastor, you know, he has uh, something traumatic happens to him. And then his actions and the way he talks to people, uh, it affects a ton of people negatively in that movie. And uh, I went to watch that with my wife and I went out to my car and I was already kind of shaky watching that movie. And then I went out to my car 
and I had a full on panic attack telling my wife, like, I just, it's a lot of pressure, you know, thinking, you know, if I fall, if I mess up, if I say this, if I do that, uh, I, I just, I ruined, you know, Christianity and Jesus Christ for all these people. Uh, so I take that very seriously. And now, you know, I don't, now I trust God and just, you know, like I said, I keep my integrity strong. So that way I you know, I know I'm, I'm representing Christ as at least the best of my ability. Right. Because we are human. We were right. given the, ch- the chance to make choices. And so, and, and so I really appreciate you being honest too about your mental wellness and suffering from depression and stuff, because I think, I, I think it's finally coming to light where, where we are being more open to talk about mental wellness, because I think, you know, being able to share your story um, with others. And um, so I really appreciate you, you sharing that and yeah. that, you know, for people to see that if you're not, I, there's not one person in our world that's perfect. You know, yeah. just like I think this whole, you know, normal um, family life growing up, like I really don't think that there's a whole lot of that <laughs> anymore either. I think dysfunction yeah, right. is more the norm than, you know, the leave it to beaver, cleaver family growing up because it's just it's not realistic anymore. This could be a good conversation for later, too. But I know a lot of times in uh, in Christianity, uh, mental wellness has kind of just been put off. You know, if you if you're not mentally well, the. The idea was that that it's it's uh, that you don't have enough faith in Jesus or whatever, or uh, you don't study the Bible enough. You're just not a good enough Christian, uh, all that kind of stuff. And mental wellness is almost like it just doesn't exist in a lot of Christian minds. Uh, but I think I think a lot of people, like people I went to school with, you know, the 20 people I met that are ministers now, are starting to realize that actually mental wellness is an important thing and it's something we need to we need to take seriously. Your brain is an organ. And just like if you yeah. have heart problems, you go through to a cardiologist. If you, you know, have foot problems, you go to a podiatrist, you know, your brain yeah. is an organ. And there are some things that are just, you know, that need to be addressed in your brain for some sort of mental wellness um, issues. So thank you so much for, for, for talking about that and for being open and honest about that. Um, so I wanted to share with you, I looked up while you were talking um, about how you're using your journey in, in both of your professions now, because you certainly can use it on both sides of the street that you're in. Um, her name is Pima Chodron. I don't know if you've heard about her. I think she was, she's, um, I, I think a Buddhist monk, but her quote says, compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our own darkness well can be we pre- can we be present with darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. So I think what you're saying is that because you've been, you know, in the darkness of losing your mom, you're not you're not up here trying to heal somebody. You're sitting in the darkness with them and you're able to share that journey with them because you've been through it. And I right. think that that, you know, I think that that makes a big difference. Yeah. And like you said, too, I learned uh, I had a couple of professors teach me this in school. But uh, I've, I've heard you say this, at least in, in with my brother and sister, one of the two or maybe both. But uh, I know you've said before, you know, when, when I counsel with people, you know, I never I never tell people I understand what you're going through. Uh, I say, uh, oh, this is what this is. This is what happened to me, even because I have to be vulnerable with them. So they'll trust me. But I say, this is what happened to me. This is what I felt like. And a lot of times, you know, they feel a lot of the same ways, but their, their feelings are usually very unique. Everybody's story is different and everybody's story and journey is important. Well, this has been great. So usually I try to finish with some sort of last parting thought or something that you want someone to take away from the podcast or 
anything that you'd like to end with. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I know one of the biggest things, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure my brother said the same exact thing, uh, especially for, for guys, uh, is, is to open up to people. Uh, most people that you're going to be around aren't like me. They're not going to walk up to you and ask you. Uh, but just walk up to somebody that you trust. You know, you don't have to trust everybody. You probably shouldn't trust everybody. Uh, but walk up to somebody you trust and say, hey, listen, uh, you know, just tell them. You say, I'm struggling with some stuff. Can I talk to you? And if they're a true friend, they'll, they'll sit and they'll listen to you uh, for hours if they need to. Like Beth was saying, you know, if you have heart problems, you go to a cardiologist, you know. Uh, but you deal with, deal with that mental wellness. Uh, but, you know, and two, uh, I, I think that, that the biggest part of my recovery had to do with Jesus Christ. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect you just to listen to me say that and just, okay, I'll follow Jesus Christ, but, uh, at least look into him and look into the Bible and pick up the Bible, read, read, uh, the gospel of John, uh, and just start studying and listen to people like Frank Turek or, or Gary Habermas talk about, or Michael Cohen or Sean McDowell talk about the faith. Uh, and I think it can really impact your life. Yeah. And I totally agree with you because I think, you know, as we keep journeying through life and go, growing with our grief, there's different stages um, that you're going to go through. And sometimes you might be a little bit more receptive than other times of your life, just like I talked about with mine. You know, I was an angsty, yeah. angry teenager, but then got baptized at the age of 33. I showed Jonathan I actually happened upon the picture today um, of when I was being baptized, actually on my birthday. So yeah. I would agree. Um, I would agree. And too, you know, and, and as a minute, especially, you know, if you're in a ministry position or counselor position, you know, you seek help too, but uh, you know, and when people, but when people walk up to you and they, and they're, uh, especially this is more for Christian ministers because of the problem of evil. And, uh, but just know that there's no answer you can give. That's going to, that's going to satisfy uh, their question. People like me, you'll say, well, where was God when my mom died? You know, uh, you know, just, you know, when people ask those kinds of questions, nothing, nothing you say is going to satisfy that. Uh, and all you can do is deal with the here and now you can't, you can't change the past. Yeah. Uh, so focus on the future and, and, uh, and uh, the present. Yep. Yep. So if people would want to pick your brain a little bit more about that, would you be willing for me to put an email for you in the show notes so that somebody could reach out to you? <laughs> yeah, that would be question? good. Yeah, just because. And like I told you earlier, I have my own podcast, uh, Grace Bond Ministries, and uh, uh, Grace Bond, B-O-N-D. Thank you. But with that, I also, that would probably be the best email, would be uh, gracebondministries at gmail.com. Perfect. Uh, and I, I, I've talked about some of this stuff on there and, and uh, just a bunch of different topics and stuff. But I'm on my Facebook, YouTube, and uh, basically just about anywhere you can get podcasts. Okay. Well, I'll put all that in the show notes so that people can find that. Because especially if yeah, there's another good. son without a mom that's listening to this and that they feel a little bit of connection to you, um, yeah. you know, I think that, that that would be great that they have a, a way to reach you. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes. Jonathan, thank you for wrapping up my um, Jenkins siblings series here. <laughs> uh, we don't yeah. have any more siblings, so well, maybe <laughs> no, the Lozano I, brothers. <laughs> I was going to say, either I got to go after your dad or the Lozano brothers. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I really appreciate you being here and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in being interviewed for a podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.